By April of 1993, Superman was still dead. Outside of a few one-shots, no Superman comics had been published since January with the death of Jonathan Kent. In the real world, news of Superman's return was not only making local newscasts, but even those nightly news magazine shows like Entertainment Tonight. And despite all the downtime and the continuing timeline in those one-shots, the Supertitles returned with Adventures of Superman number 500 picking right up where they left off. Doctors perform CPR on Paul, getting his heart beating again, but weakly. While they continue to work on him and Ma heads out to the waiting room to see that Lois has arrived for support, in Metropolis, Gangbuster thinks he's stopping a drug deal, but he's actually interfering with an undercover police operation. And since he has a warrant out for his arrest after what he did to those drug pushers back in Legacy of Superman, he runs off, but not before getting a bullet to the shoulder as he dives into the dirty Metropolis River. Uh, back in Smallville, Pa is having a vision that he's talking to Clark, but this time Clark is telling him to go back while he goes into the light, led by wraiths that look like Kryptonians sometimes. But Jonathan follows and ends up in a Korean war zone where all he can remember is that he needs to bring back the flyer. Along the way, he sees his brother, which is weird because he's dead. As he pushes deeper into enemy territory, we switch to WGBS, where resident slimeball Vincent Edge a.k.a. you know, Vinny, not only apparently pinches Cat Grant's butt, but also uses her recent breakup with Gangbuster to talk her into a dinner date. Mm, it's the early 90s, folks. Can't get away with that now. At the Daily Planet, Jimmy doesn't want to be Turtle Boy anymore, and he and Ron Troop keep hoping Clark will return, even though it's been two weeks. Yes, in comic book time, it's only been two weeks since Doomsday. Wow. Back in Pa's vision... He finds himself in a familiar cornfield in Kansas, but he accidentally falls into an old well. Fortunately, his dad is able to save him, but when he exits the well, his dad is now a big blue demon, and the evil Blaze is there to offer him a deal. She will help him complete his mission in exchange for his soul. Typical devil. Anyway, Paul refuses, and so the demon drops him back in the well, except this time he doesn't stop falling, and ends up in space where he meets Kismet. She clears his mind and tells him that he needs to stop following his lifeline. Also, he can't raise the dead, but all beings have the ability to affect their own fate. The next thing he knows, he's in what appears to be ancient Krypton, back when the place looked more like Naboo than it did by the time Kal-El was in his birthing matrix back in Man of Steel 1. But he finds Clark, who is being led by the cleric and other Kryptonians, down the wrong path. Back in Metropolis again, Gangbuster is helped out of the river by Bebo's friend High Pockets and asks for help getting to the bus station so he can get the heck out of town. 
Back in the afterlife, Pa is able to get Clark to open his eyes and see the Kryptonians for the demons they really are. After a quick skirmish, Clark flies Pa toward, his, toward this black void, while Pa tries to convince him not to accept death and come back with him. Jor-El tries to stop them, but just like in Man of Steel number 6, Pa hits him with a shovel, and he disappears in a puff of smoke. As they enter the void together, Pa wakes up in the hospital claiming to have brought Clark back to life. With Pa doing much better now, but his ranting about Clark being too much for her to bear, Lois heads back to Metropolis and her plane is passed by someone in a red cape streaking past the plane. At the airport, Lois sees a TV report about five different Superman sightings, including report of him being smelly and him killing a criminal. With all these sightings, Lois arranges with Inspector Henderson to check out the tomb, but when they enter, all they see is an open, empty casket. Now, before I continue, I do want to point out that this was the last issue written by Jerry Ordway. Jerry had been with the Superbook since the reboot in 87, first as an artist on Adventures, then as the writer and artist after Byrne left. He'd shift over to Superman for a bit before returning to Adventures again as a writer, allowing Tom Grummet to take the reins as the artist. He even moved down the credits list behind the art team, giving them a higher credit than him. After six years, he decided it was time to move on, working on some independent stuff, as well as bringing back Captain Marvel in the Power of Shazam series. He eventually does come back to the Superbooks, but that isn't even the end of the issue. First up in Suicide Slum, a gang fight between the dragons and the sharks is about to start up, but the sharks are packing giant guns called Toastmasters, with ammo that not only tears a person apart, but appears to burn the remains as well. With the dragons all but wiped out, the sharks are chased off by the arrival of the police. But thanks to the damage, someone is able to pull himself out of the rubble. He's a huge man with a sledgehammer. Think Shaq, but a lot more sculpted. And the only thing in his mind is that he's got to stop Doomsday. In another part of the city, an attempted carjacking is stopped by a man with a Superman symbol on his chest. After the bullets bounced off the stylized desk, the carjacker runs off, even climbing up to the top of a building to get away. But his pursuer can fly. And with energy crackling from his hands, the flying man blasts the carjacker, knocking him off the building. And the flying man stands revealed. He looks like Superman, but the costume is wrong. He's wearing a yellow visor, and he has energy coming from his hands, as I just mentioned. And he swears that all who sin will know the vengeance of Superman. Could he truly be Superman Reborn? At Project Cadmus, Guardian and his team respond to alarms from Lab 13. Inside is a shattered tube and what looks to be a piece of Superman's cape. Plus, Carl Packard has been tied to the ceiling using some piping. The newsboys have broken Experiment 13 out of the lab before any codes could be impl implemented. Therefore, Cadmus has no control over the experiment. Outside, a red-gloved hand punches the grating off a super pipe. As the new boys and their... As the, new boys? As the newsboys and their friend exit, Gabby starts to call him Superboy, but he only wishes to be called Superman. He's a teenager, sporting an earring and an early 90s bowl cut, although the longer hair on top does look familiar, especially the spit curl. His costume is covered in pointless straps, and he appears to have a bit of a tood. Dawn in Metropolis. Outside the Daily Planet, a family of tourists see the plaque marking the spot where Superman died. But from the sky drops a man in a familiar costume. He picks up the plaque, melting it with a glance. As he flies off again, we see that he looks just like Superman. Except that he's half-robotic. 
a cyborg, if you will. Could this be Superman rebuilt? The following week, the reign of the Supermen began with a bang, as one issue of all four Superbooks were sold on the same day, giving readers the equivalent of the first month of story all at once, and all setting up the big mystery, which of them, if any, is the real Superman. The mystery begins in Action 687. Down in Superman's Antarctic Fortress, the robots are trying to reconstitute their master. But complete reconstruction is not possible, leaving him as an energy being with an incomplete memory. To help him recall how he came to be like this, he activates the Fortress Monitors, which give him a quick recap of the whole death and funeral portion of the story. But if he's Superman, then the power must be in the body. So after a quick trip to Metropolis, he enters the tomb and stabs his hand through the closed casket to the body, as this takes place before the final pages of Adventures 500. Now solid, he can somehow sense all the alarms and security systems in the tomb. But the light is blindingly bright to him. Nevertheless, he quickly heads back to the fortress. Meanwhile, Bebo has decided to honor his favorite by putting on a makeshift Superman costume and helping whomever he can. And thus is born the Smelly Superman. In the fortress, we learn a few things about this last son of Krypton. First off, he must use a regeneration matrix in the fortress to recharge rather than absorbing power from the sun. He's got a nifty new visor to dim the light, and he can now shoot energy beams from his hands. Meanwhile, on the monitor array, more reports from around the world are displayed, showing a world in need of Superman. So, with his new cape and S-shield in place, he flies off to Metropolis. Shortly, he's all over the news after stopping an attempted rape by killing the offender, taking out some drug runners, putting the fear of Rao in a cat burglar. And we also see him, see that the carjacker we saw earlier is now in critical condition with several broken bones and third-degree burns over 25% of his body. Also, news breaks of Superman's body missing from the tomb. Again, and several groups claiming responsibility. Later, after our hero prevents a plane crash, Lois shows up in a scene very reminiscent of Man of Steel number 1, in which they are then surrounded by a large crowd of people, like in Man of Steel number 1. He flies the two of them to a rooftop, and she quizzes him on who she is. He knows she's Lois, and that she was engaged to Clark, and that he was Superman. But he has changed, and now there is no Dana, only Zool- No, wait. There is no Kent, only Superman. And Lois is left wondering if someone learned Clark's secret, or if she's just lost him all over again. In Man of Steel 22, we begin with our shack-like friend, Henry Johnson, telling some friends, including our friend Keith, about the legend of John Henry, while another gang fight begins nearby, with one side, the Sharks, once again packing Toastmasters. It's still going on as the kids leave, and one of the kids is killed by a Toastmaster blast. Henry goes after the gangbangers and manages to not only catch up to them, but break the gun as well. But for all his effort, he ends up slammed and smeared along a brick wall. Later, at the hospital, he's visited by Keith, and he tells him about the time he was working in a construction site when a friend of his fell off. Henry had grabbed the cable, caught the guy, and got him back to safety, but then the hook on the other side of the cable detached from the building, and he was falling. Fortunately, Superman had saved him and told him to make his life count for something. Later on, it turns out that he was working on that construction project that Superman and Doomsday crashed through, but before Henry could even attempt to help his hero, there was that giant explosion, and he was buried in the unfinished basement. While he was down there, he swears he saw fog, angels, and demons. Plus, his grandfather was there and didn't want him to die. 
This sounds familiar for some reason. Anyway, about a week after getting out of the hospital, the sharks follow Henry home, but he goes down to the basement to finish a project. After finishing up a metal mask, he puts on a suit of armor just as the sharks throw a Molotov cocktail through the window, which hits an oil reservoir, causing the fire to spread throughout the building. Grabbing his trusty sledgehammer, he busts through to his neighbor, announcing himself as the Man of Steel. His armor is all silver with rocket boots, a rivet gun on his left wrist, and an S-shield on his chest plus a red cape, complete with yellow S-shield. Apparently you can get those anywhere in Metropolis, a big selling thing. After saving his neighbor, a psychic, he heads back to save others, and she is interviewed, introducing her theory of a walk-in spirit. As Lois runs into Jeb Friedman, or as I like to call him, Slimy A-Hole, Lex wants to know more about this Man of Steel and the Toastmasters. Speaking of which... Man of Steel, who I will just be referring to as Steel from now on because Man of Steel is a mouthful, has tracked down the sharks at a sales meeting which he then busts up. He takes a direct shot from a Toastmaster, and with this confirmation of what the guns are, we learn through flashback that Steel is responsible for the creation of these guns. He captures one of the sharks, but he is killed by the White Bunny before the shark can give up more than her name. She also recognizes Steel as John Henry Irons, meaning he changed his name at some point. Elsewhere, Jeb weasels his way into a dinner date with Lois, and Lex wants to meet Steel. Superman number 78 starts off as a bit of a mystery, which is weird considering the cyborg Superman was completely revealed in Adventures of Superman 500. Anyway, Lois goes to a LexCorp plant to investigate a Superman sighting, which includes photographic evidence, conveniently keeping the robotic half of him in shadow. At Star Labs, this Superman arrives for Doomsday, but we learn that the president signed custody of Doomsday over to Cadmus. Soon, the cyborg Superman streaks past Cadmus' Sky Sentinels and stands up to a weapons barrage before standing revealed to them. X-Ray Vision reveals the location of Doomsday's vault, and using his robotic half for some reprogramming, he gets access. Inside, he grabs Doomsday and takes off for space, where he ties Doomsday to an asteroid, as well as constructing a small warning device, and tosses the asteroid off in a trajectory in which he will not intersect with anything. Returning to Earth, the cyborg Superman meets up with Lois, but his memory is foggy. He does remember that Lois first named him. He remembers a Kansas farm, as well as the name Kent. She takes him to Professor Hamilton, who verifies that his robotic half is indeed Kryptonian, and his biological half matches Superman exactly, leaving him to conclude that this is the real Superman. Meanwhile, in deep space, Doomsday awakens and laughs. Adventures of Superman 501 begins with some punks in what might be a stolen cab, trying to run down a jogger in Centennial Park. The young Superman arrives just in time to save the jogger, giving her a kiss before he leaves. And based on the art, it almost looks like he's slipping her the tongue in the process, which is actually fitting for his character. In Suicide Slum, Bibbo is handing out sandwiches when he hears an old lady who couldn't bear to watch her puppy starve, so she dumped them in the river. Bibbo dives in to save them, but only manages to save one. A little white one that he decides to name Krypton. At the Daily Planet, the kid is trying to convince Lois that he's a clone of Superman, even putting on his sunglasses and slicking his hair back. But he smots? But he spots Tana Moon snor- snorming. But he spots Tana Moon storming out and goes chasing after her. This meeting eventually leads to Tana getting a GBS exclusive interview with the kid, where he reveals that he is a clone of Superman. While X is pretty ticked about this revelation, Vinny decides to use this to his advantage, 
sending the kid to Suicide Slum to take down some inner gang boss named Steel Hand, while GBS films the entire thing. He makes pretty short work of the gauntlet leading to Steel Hand, although he does get some unseen help from Guardian. After an exploding truck destroys his jacket, he gets real ticked and finally takes down Steel Hand. Later, Vinny insinuates that he will be arranging another supervillain attack for the kid to take care of on air, and Dr. Packard explains to Lex how Cadmus was able to somehow clone Superman. You know, in hindsight, it's interesting to see how obvious they were in showing Superboy's powers here. But by not actually calling attention to it, you don't really notice them. The bullet bouncing off his hair. The single punch to the ground causing the, it to buckle and sending people and cars flying. And blowing up guns just by holding them. Very interesting. Now, if you're following along with one of the recent trade collections, I will point out that I'm not covering the annuals, as they do not really have much to do with the main storyline. But if you want to hear about them, check out From Crisis to Crisis, which not only covers all of them, but also has me on as a guest for the action annual episode. Links in the show notes. Speaking of the main story, it continues in Action Comics 688. In the city of Chicago, Guy Gardner reads a Newstime article about the four supermen and decides to go to Metropolis to take down the fakes. Speaking of the Big Apricot, which is Metropolis' nickname, in case you didn't know, the visored Superman, henceforth known as Shades, stops the safecracker by crushing all of his bones from fingertip to elbow in both arms, as you do. He returns to the fortress feeling pretty good about himself and his mission. During a brief check of the monitor array, he learns of the other Superman. I don't know how he didn't run into them in the city, but, you know, whatever. In Metropolis, we learn that the commissioner has resigned, with Inspector Henderson being promoted to take his place. His first order of business is to promote Captain Sawyer to Inspector Sawyer. This is going to stick throughout most of the Triangle era, although by the end of the decade, she'll be referred to as Captain again for some reason sometimes. It's like they forgot. Anyway. Anyway, that evening, despite the art showing a bright blue sky, Shades notices a gathering at an abandoned gas station, but is distracted by a large fire at the waterfront. The fire was just a construct from Guy's ring, and a fight ensues between the two of them. Eventually, the fight ends up at the gas station, interrupting an illegal gun sale. Shades makes short work of them, much to Guy's delight. Afterward, Guy vouches for Shades, but the city is not happy with the excessive violence, and the SEU has been given the task of trying to stop him. This all leaves Shades wondering if there might be a better way. Don't get too excited, though, because this is his pattern. He will be back to his normal stuff by the time we see him again. In Man of Steel 23, Steel has been followed by some shark enforcers packing Toastmasters. He turns the tables on them, trying to find more info on the White Rabbit, only to get half a word from one of them before he's killed. Later, there is a three-way fight between Steel, the Reavers, and the Skulls, with more Toastmasters sprinkled in for flavor, and Lois is covering it via helicopter for the planet, but GBS also heard about it and sent Superboy, or the kid. The kid's trying to show up by dodging Toastmaster Blast, but one of them hits the planet chopper, killing the pilot and leaving Lois no other options but to bail out as it explodes. Fortunately, Steel saves her in a scene very reminiscent of her first encounter with Clark. After Steel gives the kid a good talking to, leaving him something to think about, Lois begins to wonder if a walk-in spirit could possibly be real. Meanwhile, a member of Team Luther requests Steel's presence in a meeting with Lex Luthor II. Lex offers him coverage on WLEX, much like GBS is giving to Superkid, sweetening the deal by telling him that White Rabbit is currently at the Metro Spire penthouse. 
Steele declines the news coverage, but heads over to the White Rabbit. It turns out that they know each other, having worked together at Weston Technologies and having a bit of a fling. She was responsible for an earlier version of the Toastmasters being used in Quarak, which is why Steele went into hiding in the first place. And she's brought upgraded versions to Metropolis. When he isn't willing to join her in her enterprise, she uses a Toastmaster to blast him out of the building. He lands in a tanker truck, making it volatile, but the kid had been following him so he could apologize and is able to save him before the tanker explodes, although the heat hurts the kid. They head back up to confront the white bunny, but she's gone. Later, as Supergirl goes out to look for the kid, Lex learns that the bug he planted on steel was destroyed, but not before he heard White Rabbit refer to him with his real name, John Henry Irons, a weapons designer wanted by the feds. In Superman number 79, while helping clear out Clark's apartment, Ron Troop talks to Perry about taking Clark's spot at the planet. Perry challenges him to prove he deserves to fill Clark's shoes by bringing him a story so big he can't turn it down. Ron's idea was to figure out which of the four Supermen is the real one. So after calling up the Justice League embassy, he went to Washington, D.C. to meet with Maxwell Lord, who was headed to the White House to brief the president. After coaxing Lord out of his limo, the White House was attacked by Quaraki terrorists, but fortunately, the cyborg Superman arrived to stop them and made short work of them. But with them down, he became the sole target of the White House's defenses. To prove he was really Superman, Ron risked his life to take a DNA scanner and get a scan of the cyborg. Like Hamilton's test last issue, everything matched with the previous records for Superman. The defense systems powered down, and the hero was able to enter the building. To ensure everything was secure, he requested access to the White House security system, which was granted, giving him access to every computer system on Earth. Once connected, he could see everything, including info on Hawkman, Green Lantern, the Fantastic Four, and a curious-looking ship in space that no one appears to have noticed. But he also learned of a bomb that was hidden in Lord's briefcase, and melted it to prevent an explosion. When the President greeted his hero, the cyborg built a communication device and gave it to the President so he could contact him at any time. Later, Ron returns to Metropolis to write the whole thing, complete with a photo of the President shaking hands with the cyborg Superman. Ron gets Clark's job and desk, and the Daily Planet declares that Superman is back. Oh, the irony. Anyway, in Adventures of Superman 502, Supergirl helps the kid out with a super save in order to invite him to dinner with her and Lex. Meanwhile, a deadshot wannabe named The Stinger confirms that the kid is his target, and Bibbo is unable to get a dog tag with enough letters for Krypton, so his new dog is now named Crypto. That evening, the kid has dinner with Lex and Supergirl and is convinced to join the WLEX team. He will sign the contracts in the morning, but first he has to head over to 344 Clinton Street because he's got a new apartment, where the kid is introduced to Rex Leach and his teenage daughter, Roxy. After Roxy covers him in kisses, the kid signs a contract making Rex his manager and making him exclusive to WGBS. Vinny Edge tells Tana that he expects a big news day the following day. Tana has some objections, but he reminds her that she's expendable. The next day, the kid is transporting a train engine to the Metropolis Museum of Science when the Stinger shoots him with an explosive. While he can't catch the falling engine, he does manage to push it so it lands in a park. The kid confronts Stinger, and while it isn't clear if Stinger has any superpowers, he's able to use enough gimmicks to hold his own against the kid as the fight heads to the Baker Line area. Eventually, Supergirl arrives to help, but since she wasn't part of the deal, Stinger fires off some explosive charges at the nearby bridge support and dives into the water. There isn't time for our heroes to disable the bombs, and the bridge explodes. Meanwhile, near Saturn, 
We catch up to that weird spaceship that the cyborg Superman seemed to ignore previously. It's headed for Earth, and it's only three days away. Of course, that begs the question, do they mean Earth days, or days wherever their planet is from, or whatever planet they're from? Uh, we don't know. Just says three days. In Action Comics number 689, the kid and Supergirl recover and begin rescue operations, trying to recover as many people as possible before they drown. Meanwhile, in the fortress, the regeneration matrix that Shades has been using to recharge overloads and crashes to the ground. Inside is a familiar-looking man in a black suit that appears to be of Kryptonian origin. He quickly revives, figuring out where he is, and asks for an update on what's been happening in Metropolis, including news on the four supermen. Interestingly, he looks just like Shades, minus the visor, and while he has a pentagon-shaped shield on his chest, it's just covered in squiggly lines. While he tries to figure out how to get to Metropolis as quickly as possible, we return to the Hobbsneck Bridge, where Supergirl and the kid have finished rescue operations, saving 27 people, but also recovering 12 bodies. At this point, the kid tells Supergirl about his contract with GBS, then we cut to her telling Lex about it, which ticks him off, of course. Meanwhile, in Smallville, Jonathan is ticked that Supergirl is making nice with one of the fake Supermen. Back in Metropolis, Steel is confronting a gang when one of them comes up from behind and but appears to be vaporized before he can get a shot off. It's Shades, and he's also fused the other gun so they won't work. Steel is not happy with how Shades saved him, noting that the real Superman wouldn't use unnecessary violence, and calling Shades a fraud. This starts a fight, which just so happens to be near where Lois and Jimmy have stopped to grab a bite to eat. Lois eventually manages to stop the fight, with even Shades feeling bad about it, until a process server arrives to tell them that they are infringing on the Superman trademark. See, that contract also meant that the kid trademarked the name Superman, and so they're going after the all the others. It's fun. As you can see when Shades gets set off again, and burns the papers and prepares to attack the process server until Steel grabs him and flies him away. But Shades adds his own flying power to Steel's, taking them up towards space. Since his armor isn't built for space, Steel is forced to let go. As he falls back to Earth, he tries using his boot jets to slow down, but Shades arrives, pushing them both down until they crash into the ground, creating a crater. Could either of them have survived? It turns out the answer is yes, as Man of Steel 24 begins with a splash page showing them both alive and well in the crater at the Coast City shopping mall. Although Steel's cape is tattered and his left gauntlet is damaged, Shades says he wants to kill Steel, but his armor withstands a blast from Shades' hands. Steel then proceeds to repeatedly punch Shades, which doesn't harm him, but the words he says during the beating cause Shades to question what it takes to truly be a hero. Steel also smashes his visor, so Shades retreats, telling Steel to go back to Metropolis while he sticks around to help out in Coast City. Back in Metropolis, Lois is having trouble with Clark being replaced and contemplates taking an international correspondent assignment to get out of town. Elsewhere, a Team Luther squad captures White Rabbit and Luther promises to, to deliver Steel to her in hopes that they will destroy each other. See, he arranged for a Lexair jet to transport Steel back to Metropolis, and he knows when it's going to arrive. So, when it does, White Rabbit and her men are ready to attack. Steel manages to save the pilot before the plane explodes. There's a lot of exploding in the Man of Steel issues. Then make short work of Rabbit's men. He then forces her to show him where she manufactures the Toastmasters, but she kind of has the place booby-trapped. Once she traps him under a press, she activates a bomb to destroy the whole place. He manages to lift the press, bringing down the ceiling and seemingly trapping the White Rabbit. 
and flies himself out as the bomb explodes. Lex is disappointed that the White Rabbit lost, but he has a Toastmaster now and can make his own, plus he knows Steel's background, so he feels that he can control him if needed. All in all, he's come out on top. Later, near lunar orbit, the master of that spaceship tells his crew that they may be the last beings in the universe to see Earth in its unaltered state. Superman number 80 has a very spoilerific cover, doesn't it? Anyway, a LexCorp satellite has finally spotted the spaceship, and its telemetry seems to indicate that it's heading for Coast City. But Shades is there. Could he be behind it? In Coast City, Shades is at Ferris Aircraft helping with a fire when he's informed of the spaceship, and vows that if they aren't looking for peace, they will regret the day he left Metropolis. Where the cyborg Superman is getting a call from about the spaceship from the White House, also wondering if Shades is behind it. Back in Coast City, the ship is massive enough to cover almost all of downtown and drop 77,000 carnage globes on the city. As Shades flies around investigating the ship, Cyborg Superman arrives, accusing him of being responsible for what is happening. But Shades doesn't have time for this foolishness, and as he resumes his investigation, the Cyborg shoots him in the back with blasts powerful enough to penetrate all the way through his body. As the aliens activate the orbs, the Cyborg shoots Shades through the face revealing that he's responsible for this carnage, just as all of the orbs explode, annihilating Coast City and killing more than 7 million people in just an instant. Shades is reduced back to his energy form and tries to make his way back to the fortress. Meanwhile, the aliens release seeds, which burrow down into the ground and begin building and connecting as machinery rises up from the ground. I imagine it's like the fortress building scene in Superman the movie. I don't know. As Shades arrives at the fortress, the cyborg gets a call from the White House and he gives them a false report about the ship leaving and there being nothing but flat ground as he flies around the city-sized metallic construction coming together right in front of him. As the Kryptonian battlesuit inside the fortress is activated, the cyborg concludes his report to the White House and receives a report from his underling. Construction is almost complete and while the cyborg declares that Metropolis will be next, Mongul kneels before the cyborg and kisses his metallic hand. You remember Mongul, right? He was kind of the head guy of this place called War World. At least he was until Superman showed up and basically freed the whole planet from his uh, reign of terror. And we really haven't seen him since. Yeah, that Mongul. And actually, that story... That Description actually works with the more recent Warworld storyline in the more recent Superman books, but I'm talking about the original time he saved Warworld back in the 80s during the Exile storyline. Anyway, we move into Action Comics number 503, which begins with the cyborg flying over what is left of Santa Barbara, California, which has also been destroyed, while giving a report to the White House. He pauses his report to kill some survivors before concluding that the ship is gone and there is nothing where Coast City once stood. Which seems like he's just reiterating the same... Oh, wait. Yes, this is Santa Barbara, not Coast City. Oh, no, he said Coast City. You know, I'm very confused about this part because he already said that. Anyway, his White House contact suggests calling in the Justice League, but the cyborg suggests to call the young Superman instead. In Metropolis, the kid gets his call to action, but Tana will not be joining him for this one. Down in the Antarctic... The Kryptonian battlesuit blasts its way out of the fortress, walks off a cliff, and falls to the bottom of the freezing water below. Once it hits bottom, it resumes its march. 
Later, the kid has met up with the cyborg and the GBS news crew. As cameras roll, the cyborg advises against anyone going with them into the blast site, but the kid promises to keep them safe, causing the cyborg to say that he wishes that he had that much confidence in his power at his age, which catches Lois's attention as she watches the report of Metropolis. After they take off, the cyborg blasts the news chopper with heat vision, blowing it up. The shock leaves the kid completely unprepared for the barrage that the cyborg lays down on him, but he fares much better than Shades did, even temporarily disabling the cyborg's metal arm. But it doesn't make much of a difference because the kid is barely conscious at this point, and once he sees the cyborg's construction project, the cyborg takes him down hard. Could the kid be dead? Now, way back in 1988, Roger Stern had created a group that worshipped Superman as their deity. Action Comics 690 begins with the SCU having to stop a riot at the Superman Memorial when two factions of this religious group, one that follows Shades and one that follows the Cyborg, begin fighting. Meanwhile, in the area formerly known as Coast City, the kid is alive, but has been captured. Cyborg monologues at the kid, bringing him up to speed about what has happened in the last couple of issues, and finally giving us a name for his construction project, Engine City. In the Antarctic, Shades has finally made his way into the fortress only to find the regeneration matrix empty, the Kryptonian battlesuit missing, a giant hole in the wall, and the outfit our stranger from last issue was wearing is on the floor, meaning he must be naked somewhere. Ew. Elsewhere, the battlesuit continues its journey along the bottom of the ocean. In Metropolis, Lois talks to Inspector Sawyer about her concerns with the cyborg when a police scientist investigating the disappearance of Superman's body reports that the slab the coffin had been on is smaller than before, as though its mass had been stolen somehow. Elsewhere, the cyborg fakes a video report to the Justice League in which he and the kid convince them that Shades is the bad guy and has fled to the asteroid belt to regroup with the alien attackers. With them gone, he then tortures the kid with his plans to turn Metropolis into a second engine city. Back at the fortress, the robots have stabilized Shades' physical form but need to clear up his mental confusion before he goes brain dead. So, using the fortress memory banks to help, they reveal his origins to him. Shades is the Eradicator, an ancient Kryptonian weapon. He's gone against Superman before in his attempts to recreate Krypton on Earth, but was seemingly destroyed in the fortress in their last battle. It took a while, but thanks to the failsafes in the fortress, his energy was finally collected altogether in Action 687. But he was confused, and after seeing the news reports, believed he was Superman. When he went to the city, he was unable to absorb Superman's body so he used the mass in the tomb, such as the slab, to create a physical form which he based on Superman. Then he put Superman's body in a special suit and put it inside the regeneration matrix as his power source. But Kal-El is revived and is now in the battlesuit headed for Metropolis, because putting an end to all this nonsense is a job for the real Superman. In Man of Steel 25, LexCorp sensors have picked up the battlesuit nearing Metropolis, and Steel wonders how he was able to fight Shades to a standstill but he's giving the combination of Cyborg and the kids so much trouble. So he plans to head to what's left of Coast City as well. Speaking of Engine City, the kid finally manages to escape with his tactile TK powers, although he doesn't know that yet and hasn't named it yet, I just know that from future stuff, and manages to find his way out to freedom and flies to Metropolis as fast as he can. Immediately, the Cyborg puts out a news report that the kid has been captured and brainwashed by Shades. He also, again... Mentions having powers as a kid, which still bugs Lois while she's at dinner with Slimeball Jeb. This time in her confusion and loneliness and playfulness, she kisses Jeb. 
but immediately regrets it so much that she's ready to go to the other side of the country the next morning to check out Coast City. Meanwhile, Supergirl is also ready to fly out west, but reports of the giant robot sidetracker. At the airport, Lois and Steel compare notes about why they're going to Coast City when Supergirl arrives to stop the arriving battlesuit. As Steel joins in to help, the kid arrives too, and they manage to knock it down. As the kid explains what has really happened in Coast City, from the wreckage comes a man. Although he has long hair, he looks very familiar. He's in a black suit, but the silver insignia is the familiar S-Shield. Superman has returned. Although, not completely. As we learn in Superman 81, he's not at full power at the moment. As such, he's having trouble convincing anyone he's the real deal. It isn't until he mentions Clark's favorite movie to Lois that she's even giving him a chance. Meanwhile, in Engine City, we learn that with Metropolis turned into a second Engine City, they'll be able to fly Earth out of its orbit, and War World will be reborn. We also learn that the cyborg is actually Hank Henshaw. I know, first time I read this, I was like, who? Anyway, I will explain somewhat to the best of my ability. So, he'd been in a space shuttle mission with his crew, which included his wife, when it was hit by some strange radiation, possibly due to Superman throwing the Eradicator into the sun, but no concrete proof of that. Anyway, instead of the Fantastic Four, this crew fell apart, with one being absorbed by the sun and one committing suicide due to all the pain from being part dirt and part metal, and Henshaw seemingly dying as well. But instead of dying, his consciousness had gone into a computer console, so now he could control technology. When he tried to see his wife, his appearance caused her mind to break and she eventually died, which he blamed Superman for. He was also disrupting tech in Metropolis and beyond, so he managed to transmit himself somehow to the Kryptonian Matrix Chamber that had been floating in Earth orbit since Superman number 1. He was able to construct a small rocket from that and fled to deep space. He ended up on a planet that Mongol had conquered, put on a demonstration of what he could do, then, when Mongol was still defiant, he used pain to make Mongol bow to him. Now Henshaw wants revenge on Superman and Earth, and he's doing a pretty good job of it so far. Back in Metropolis, Superman tries to convince Lois it's really him by mentioning private moments she shared with Clark. But coming back from the dead just seems too impossible, even though it had happened to other heroes and villains many times before this. His last effort is to tell her the last thing he told her as he gave her a final kiss before ending the fight with Doomsday which appears to have worked. He then borrows some rocket boots from a member of Team Luther, and he, Steel, and the kid head to Engine City. In Adventures of Superman 504, the heroes manage to infiltrate Engine City, but without his powers, Superman loads up on weaponry to help even the odds. As they move through the complex, they end up in a large missile silo. The kid thinks it's the engine bomb that will turn Metropolis into Engine City, but before they can do anything about it, they're attacked. Steel finds a door and manages to get it open just as the missile begins to launch. Steel and Superman are able to get to safety, but the kid's missing. Turns out he's on the missile, using his new powers to disable all the little globes. As Superman and Steel make their way down the silo, the missile quickly reaches Metropolis. The kid isn't sure if he's managed to disable anything, but even if he did, the impact of the missile would cause massive devastation. So, with all his super might, the kid tries to slow it down. He doesn't stop it, but he does manage to turn it back up into the sky, where it explodes high over the city. In Action 691, Superman and Steel reach the bottom of the silo, but despite not having his flight power, Superman lands just fine as more of these alien monsters attack, and we see that Superman's X-ray vision is just strong enough to allow him to tell the difference between the living beings and the robots, and fortunately taking out the robots is helping to scatter the others. It also turns out that they are getting invisible help from Supergirl, 
but Superman is keeping that a secret so she can snoop around. In Metropolis, we see that the kid survived the explosion, but he's not in good shape, and he goes off into the annual. In Engine City, Henshaw is quite upset about the kid stopping the missile, and is made even angrier with reports that Lois has declared that the new Superman is in fact the real one. In the Fortress, the Eradicator's condition is improving, but very slowly. Absorbing information or energy too quickly could be disastrous. Growing impatient, the Eradicator brings himself up to speed on what has happened while he's been recuperating, giving him even more reason to speed up his recovery. Needing more power, he channels all of the Fortress's power into himself, including the reserves and the power in the robots. With a blast, he erupts from the Fortress and makes his way toward Engine City. Speaking of Engine City, Superman's vision is good enough to spot hidden cameras, too, and after taking a few more out, Supergirl turns visible, and she and Superman explain to Steel how she's been helping all this time. While Henshaw begins using Engine City itself to battle the heroes, Mongul begins the engine core ignition process, which, without the second engine of Metropolis to balance it, will cause the planet to be torn apart. Oh, and we learned that Engine City's power source is a huge chunk of kryptonite. In Man of Steel number 26, Superman and Steel are confronted by Mongul, who reveals the engine core. Superman sends Steel to take out the engine while he battles Mongol, but before he leaves, Steel introduces himself as John Henry Irons and is pleased that Superman actually remembers him. As Mongol grabs Superman and proceeds to try squeezing the life out of him, Steel makes his way to the engine room, where Henshaw uses the surrounding tech to create a physical opponent to take Steel on. Egging him on, Steel hopes to get Henshaw to explain how to stop the engine. Meanwhile, Superman's ribs are breaking, but Supergirl manages to show up and assist. Unfortunately, Mongol makes pretty quick work of her, and he returns to beating on Superman. As the Eradicator arrives at Engine City, Steel finally gets the info he needs, and manages to use the body that Henshaw made to help jam the gears of the engine, which destroys it, and prevents Earth from being destroyed. But to do it, he also had to fly it up there himself. Could he have survived? Now, with Coast City being the home of Green Lantern, you just knew it was a matter of time before he showed up. He was out in space on some mission for the Guardians when everything went down, and as you may have guessed, he's none too pleased to see Engine City where Coast City used to be. Using his ring, he quickly busts into Engine City, taking out robot soldiers with ease. But his ring picked up heartbeats near the core, and one of them is down at the feet of a giant. So he quickly saves the fallen human in order to take on Mongol. But Mongol's yellow, so he can only use the ring indirectly against him. Such as tearing apart the city and using the wreckage to, be, to beat the tar out of Mongol. But when Mongol points out that the kryptonite exhaust could kill Superman all over again, Green Lantern, shocked to hear that Supes could be alive, leaves Mongol an opening for a powerful punch. The pain makes it hard for GL to concentrate, allowing Mongol to really tear him up, leaving him with a busted knee and a broken arm. But his will is still intact, and when he comes across John's hammer, he constructs a suit of armor that allows him to channel his willpower into one powerful blow that knocks Mongol out. The rest of the issue breezes through what happens in Superman 82, but eventually GL finds Carol Ferris and is happy she's alive, although she has news that you'd have to follow the Green Lantern title to follow. Meanwhile, back in Superman number 82, the Eradicator is still floating above Engine City, he's been there for a while, when the kid arrives, and they head inside together. As Superman and Supergirl regroup, Steel catches up to them. He survived, but his armor is very trashed. Then Henshaw shows up, blasts Superman in the chest with his heat vision, and flies off. He attacks Steel and Supergirl, leaving Superman to go after Henshaw alone. As Henshaw starts using Steel's armor against him, the Kid and the Eradicator show up to help Superman. After revealing that he's Hank Henshaw, 
he flies off, allowing the kid to use his tactile TK to save Steel. As the Eradicator and Superman go after Hinshaw, the Eradicator saves Superman from an attack, showing that he's changed. He also explains that Superman really did die, and that it was only the unique combination of his powers and the Fortress tech at just the right time that was able to bring him back. Anyway, they follow Hinshaw to the Kryptonite Center of Engine City, where he busts open its containment. After Superman seals the room off so the others can stay safe, the heroes blast away at Henshaw. But he doesn't go down so easily, taking a cable from the engine and firing kryptonite energy right at Superman. But the Eradicator gets in front of him and takes the blast. But he's able to change it, causing the energy to restore Superman to full power. Outside, Green Lantern shows up and uses a ring construct to help bust in. Why Supergirl or the kid couldn't bust through, I don't know. Elsewhere, Henshaw is looking for Superman's corpse and finds the Eradicator's burnt husk instead. Superman, angry at what Henshaw did using his name, punches Henshaw right through the chest and vibrates his arm at super speed, causing him to burst into a ton of pieces. After GL's ring can't find his consciousness anywhere in the machinery, Superman concludes that this is finally over. And after a quick telekinetic realignment of Superman's tattered outfit, Superman flies off, ready to resume his never-ending battle better than ever. But don't worry, the story's not over yet. Adventures of Superman 505 begins with a tap on Lois's window, and Lois finally being reunited with the love of her life. Later, they realize that they need to figure out how to bring Clark back, too. But that has to wait, because a D-list villain named Loophole is causing trouble uptown. After a quick break to see Supergirl, the Kid, and Steel in restored armor, Arrive at Star Labs with the Eradicator's body, we cut to Uptown, where Superman makes short work of Loophole and his goons and gets reacquainted with Maggie Sawyer. Him not knowing about her promotion, which of course happened after he died, is all the proof she needs that he's the real deal. As Superman heads off to deal with Savage Dragon, we cut to the kid's apartment, where Tana arrives to tell him that she has quit GBS and is leaving Metropolis. In the city's west side, which had been demolished during the Doomsday fight, Superman gets to meet up with Lois, Jimmy, Perry, and even Bibbo! But Crypto is barking at something insistently, and when Superman checks on it, he finds two children buried in the rubble. After Superman rescues them, Jimmy wonders if Clark could be trapped under the rubble too. This leads into action number 692, where Superman rescues Clark, who was buried under rubble. How about that? After Clark gets a clean bill of health, he and Lois return to Lois's apartment where they meet up with Superman. It turns out that Clark was actually Supergirl, using her shape-changing power to masquerade as Clark. After she leaves, another Siegel and Schuster creation, Dr. Occult, arrives to explain just how Superman was able to return. Why he shows up? I don't know. No one asked him, but he just shows up. See, it's like the Eradicator said. He really did die, but his body still had some residual energy in it and was still soaking up more until he was put in a coffin in a tomb. As such, his spirit was trapped between life and death, but was saved when Jonathan Kent helped him in the spirit world. Superman's spirit returned to his body just as the Eradicator tried to claim his body. Then, as we already knew, he put Superman in the regeneration matrix where he was once again able to absorb solar energy. It was this unique combination of physical and metaphysical events that allowed Superman to return. There is very little chance that it could be repeated. As Dr. Occult leaves, it turns out that he's magically left Clark and Lois in Smallville so Clark can be reunited with his parents. Next up in Man of Steel... The main focus, this is actually left out of most of the trades and stuff, but the main focus on this is Lois gets her hair done. Uh, she now looks more like Terry Hatcher on Lois and Clark, which is ironic because shortly after this, uh, Terry Hatcher will change her hairdo 
and, and look like a grandmother. Anyway, finally we get to Superman number 83, and our main focus is on LexCorp and several superheroes heading to Engine City to prevent it from falling into the ocean. Actually, Green Lantern wants to bury it in the Pacific, but Aquaman has objections with the long-term environmental effects that that would cause. Unfortunately, there are still some aliens inside, and they start causing explosions to bury the heroes in the rubble. While most of the heroes work to stop the aliens, those with power rings use their power to detoxify the remains of Engine City so that the ocean isn't adversely affected. With the city now in the ocean, Superman uses some of the remains to build a spire, which he ignites with his heat vision, as a memorial for all of those who died in the Coast City attack. And with that, the saga's basically over. I mean, the, the comics continue on, obviously, never-ending battle and all that. Uh, not, after, not long after this, Doomsday also returns, and we learn that the creature is also from Krypton, and was bred and cloned over and over again to force him to evolve into the perfect being. Even if he dies, he comes back with natural enhancements to save him from being killed that same way again. Remember that little device Henshaw put on Doomsday way back in Superman 78? Well, that's where his consciousness went just before Superman destroyed his body. He comes back in this story, but ends up captured by Darkseid. Speaking of Darkseid, he gets the tar beat out of him by Doomsday as well. Fun times. Uh, anyway, the only way to stop Doomsday was for Superman, with the help of Wave Rider, to leave him at the end of time. Unfortunately, he would be, then be saved by Brainiac four or five years later, but we're not going to go into all that. Eventually, the kid would give up the Superman trademark and would trademark Superboy, with proceeds going to charity, thanks to Superman's advice. He'd eventually move out of Clark's old apartment and head to Hawaii in his own book, where he'd reconnect with Tana. And Clark would get his old apartment back. Steel also gets his own book and new armor and moves to Washington, D.C. to deal with his past and the people who double-crossed him, as well as his family. The Eradicator survives, too, and due to some sort of accident, the mind of one of the Star Doctors ends up inside Eradicator's body, and then he ends up joining the Outsiders for a while. The destruction of Coast City leads to Hal Jordan going crazy in an effort to gather more power so he can restore it. This leads to him destroying the Green Lantern Corps and becoming a supervillain called Parallax. Then he destroys the entire universe in order to create a new one where Coast City lives, as you do. After that fails, he becomes an adversary for the new Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner. Eventually, he somewhat redeems himself by sacrificing himself to restore our son in the Final Crisis event, and at his memorial, Swamp Thing restores plant life to the site that was Coast City. Eventually, Hal becomes the Spectre, Coast City is fully restored, and Hal returns to life and becomes the Green Lantern again, and all his craziness is blamed on the embodiment of the Yellow Impurity, called Parallax. After this, the core is restored as well, and everything returns to normal, except they're not too happy about him killing the core, or the old core, and there's a fight, and it, it, I don't know, you've got to read the Green Lantern title. Uh, the other big repercussion from this story was Superman's powers. Since they were restored so quickly, his body's ability to process the stolen energy into powers were eventually going to kick into overdrive. At first, it was small things like not having to breathe in space and being a bit stronger, but eventually, his body started expanding and growing as well, and his power was hard to control. He even got so huge that he looked more like the Incredible Hulk cosplaying as Superman, and he had to resort to letting the parasite drain him. He returned to normal, but the parasite has, was forever changed. Fortunately, it didn't make him any smarter, so he could still be outwitted, until he absorbed the brain of a doctor, and that's another story for a long time from now. Uh, but that's basically it for the death, funeral, and return of Superman. Does anyone wonder why all the Supermen showed up all at the same time? It's, it's just such a coincidence. 
that all four of them happen to arrive, come into the city and show up at the same time. Now, if you go by the books, they literally showed up on the same day. Uh, but we can go by, I guess, the same week at least. But what a coincidence. And that is never explained. It's never explained why they all show up at that time. Really weird. Now, as for how I got into this story, um, once again, Walmart saved my life. Well, I don't know if I want to say saved my life, but anyway, they had a four pack, a five pack, actually, of comics uh, with the newsstand version of Adventures of Superman 500 and then the regular newsstand editions of all four of the Superman books that came out that first day uh, introducing the four new Superman. It also included a set of pogs. And was that it? Uh, I don't remember. It might have included a piece of paper that was a, a bit of an article taken from Superman's death. I'm not sure. And I'm trying to remember, I also got Man of Steel 1 around this time in a, one of those silver uh, classics editions things that they were doing in the early 90s. And I'm not sure if that was part of that or if I got that separately. But in any event, uh, so I got that. I got all those four issues. And then I didn't get to keep up with the story for a while until I happened upon a Walden Books uh, shortly around the time that Superman 80 came out. And I managed to grab that one. So I have an original, not-so-pristine copy of Superman 80 where Coast City blows up. And I think what it was was the cover caught my eye. So anyway, I had that. And then, what store was it at? I had been in line at a store, and they were showing, they had some TV stuff on, and they were showing that soon Superman was going to be returning. And they even showed the cover for Superman 82. And I think it was the special edition cover. I don't know, I don't remember where I got it or how I got it. But I did get the special edition version of Superman 82 with the nice foil cover. I guess it's foil with the nice cover on it, the nice glossy thing uh, where Superman's basically flying at you. Really cool looking. And so I had that and then I did get Adventures 505. And then those were basically the only books I had for a while. The only reason I was finally able to read the story was I finally got my hands on the Return of Superman trade. And I remember I had to do some sweet talking with my mom because that trade was like $15, 16 15, somewhere $15 to $20 because of how much stuff it contained. And I had to do some sweet talking to be able to, afford, to, be able to get that, even though it was my money. But I got it, and I got to read it. But uh, yeah, that's, that's basically it. I still want to know that. A coincidence though no one questions it and it never gets answered why did they all show up at the same time anywho uh, so let me know what you think of this kind of format i mean i know it still didn't speed up my releases and i apologize for that but um do you like this format for covering long stories do you not like it basically if i want to cover a long story i have to do it something like this so that I can condense it down. Because if I try to cover a long story. It's going to take forever. Uh, as you saw just in that. Not even a year long storyline. In the super books in the 80's. That I was covering not long ago. Uh, so let me know. If, if you like it. Um, I have some ideas for like. Nightfall. Because that's coming up on an anniversary. And the whole Knights trilogy. Uh, the, you know. Uh, I'm not doing Clone Saga. Mm hmm. Uh, but um, I do have some ideas for some other stuff, but if you guys don't like it, I'm not going to bother because I don't want to put out stuff that no one likes. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, either way, I want to hear from you. So let me know. In the meantime, I hope you all have a great however long it is till the next episode. I still do have 
all the way completed just needs to be edited uh, episode of Superman going up against the Luther Brainiac team. Still can't believe I haven't done that one yet, but it's coming. And I hope you all have a good time, and I will see you soon with more comic book or TV or movie fun. Bye! Thank you for listening to Charlie's GeekCast. Feedback for the show can be sent to charliesgeekcast at gmail.com, or you can feel free to leave a comment at the show's posting at charliesgeekcast.com. All images and music heard on the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for entertainment purposes only. No infringement is intended. Charlie's Geekcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Please be sure to stop by Two True Freaks to check out more great shows. Thank you again for listening, and good night. Good night.